Okay, well, thank you for joining us here on a special edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Stephen English, Neil Morrison, and David Emmett here. And as you can see, we're in the fine settings of a Silverstone restaurant. We've just uh, spent the last while just making sure that we were able to chew over the fat of a busy weekend at the British Grand Prix. And obviously enough, it was also a pretty action-packed race as well. So we've got a special show this weekend live on Periscope, and we've also got it where we'll have some questions coming in from the listeners as well so if anyone's got any questions over what they saw over the course of the Silverstone weekend just make sure to send them in into this chat and we'll get to them so Neil this was obviously a big weekend we saw one of the best races we've seen all year another last lap shootout and another time where we saw Mark Marquez come off second best but another weekend where he just continues to extend that championship lead. Yeah, one of those strange weekends where you think Marquez has every right to be a bit peeved off, a bit annoyed that he's, uh, you know, been beaten at the last corner for the second race in a row. Um, but he walks away with uh, his championship uh, advantage, uh, enhanced by 20 points. And, um, well, I mean, he's pretty much got one hand and three fingers from the other hand on it now, courtesy of uh, Quadraro and Davizioso's fall. Um, I guess if you want to look at it one way, he was caught napping, made a mistake in the final corner. But if you look at it in the other way, he basically took the fight to Alex Rins right the way until the final corner of the final lap at a track that he hasn't had a great record at in recent years. Um, and uh, yeah, he's uh, he's pretty relentless. He led, I think, 17 of the, the race's 20 laps. Um, just didn't have it for that final corner. That was pretty much it. But um, yeah, Rins really rode a, a spectacular race. Um, I wasn't quite sure whether I thought watching it live that Mark was just kind of controlling it and Rins was really struggling to hold on when actually listening to them both speak after the race, it was the other way around. Rins was sitting there really comfortably just biding his time. And yes, he left it late, very late. Um, but, uh, well, time to the perfection. And Dave, this is obviously track. It's been good for Suzuki in the past. Of course, Vinales winning here a few years ago. But Rins' performance really was something special yeah I mean he's just he's spectacular to watch ride um, you could I mean you could tell how unflustered he was by the whole situation by the fact that he um, basically pretty much watched uh, uh, he pretty much sat behind uh, Mark for a little while certain point about what about I think three laps to go he looks three four laps to go he looks up behind him to see where Maverick is nearly falls off gets back on and he's back on the back of Marquez with you know within just a few corners um, again <clears throat> Mark loses a last lap battle but the only reason he's in that last lap battle is because he can't dominate the way that he's supposed to, the way that he's used to. Um, I don't think it's the case that Mark uh, Marquez is no good in last lap battles. I just think that on his bad days, he he can only almost win rather than actually, uh, you know, actually win. Because if you on any other weekend, um, go back to Bruno, for example, a similar situation, and he just. Uh, stretched the field and eventually broke uh, uh, broke resistance this time we had Alex Rinson you know as, as we were saying he's just such a spectacular rider to watch and the things he can do with that Suzuki is absolutely fantastic it's obviously <clears throat> an extremely agile bike it can uh, it, it the lines he can take, he can afford to, you know, ride around around the outside at turn one a few times. Yeah, woodcut corner as well. Yeah, the final yeah. turn, and the penultimate yeah. lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I exactly. mean, he went full Barry Sheen. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it really was. It was. I mean, we were talking about sort of forty years ago, the first, uh, the first race, and it was proper Sheen versus Robert stuff. It was uh, uh, a fitting tribute, I think. And we've actually just got one question in here so far, and it was asking from FB Minis, will there ever be a boy who can swim faster than a shark? And I think, obviously enough, the most important thing is not to swim faster than a shark, it's to swim faster than your friends. <laughs> and uh, obviously, in this weekend's MotoGP, we saw one man that was able to swim a little bit faster at the very end. And we'll talk a bit more now about that Rins and Marquez battle. You both were talking there about the comparison to the, she the Sheen Roberts here. But, like, this was... Another time where we saw just how good of a track Silverstone is for actually creating race, and all three races were great, but it was really topped off by just what we saw in that last lap nail. Yeah, it really was, yeah. Um, and yeah, there were so many moments when I thought Rins has got, uh, you know, Marquez has got this, it's it's kind of comfortable. And then when we got into the, the final section, it's quite slow uh, in around Village and the loop, you saw how defensive Marquez was having to ride. And, um, well, I guess at that point, he basically had run out of uh, rear grip, run out of rear tire. Um, he said that he would have um, conserved his rear tire a bit more, but he was really wary of Vinales' threat. He thought Vinales was pretty much the, well, one of the two danger men of the race. Rins, I thought, I think got ahead mid-race, immediately slowed the pace down. He said he saw Rins like close the throttle a little bit and he thought, hey, like Maverick's just like two seconds behind. We can't afford to do this. He was really wary about that. He thought, well, if I go ahead, the most I'll lose is five points. And, uh, well, if Maverick comes into this, maybe I'll lose nine points. So, um, yeah, he was thinking, as always, on the bike. Um, but having the lead from the front, I think he just used up a bit too much of that rear tire. We know the Suzuki is absolutely fantastic at conserving its rear tire. That's been one of its great strengths for, I'd say, about a year now. Um, and, uh, yeah, Rins rode dynamically, beautifully, and uh, really calmly. And, you know, this is his his true rival in MotoGP because Austin, obviously, he won fantastically well. He fought off a Rossi challenge, but there's always that thing that Marquez could think, well, you know, you only won that because I crashed out off the lead, a comfortable lead as well. But here he was taking the fight to Marquez right the way um, through the race and, uh, and, and winning. So, yeah, it's... Uh, a good thing, I think it's a, a good thing for the class, um, and I think we're going to see maybe this um, similar fight, you know, one or two more times this year, to be honest, um, because there's a lot of good tracks for Rins coming up. Mizano last year was when he started building up that head of steam and was in the top six pretty much every time from there, and uh, yeah, I mean, um, he's got to be thinking second in the championship really is within his grasp now. Yeah, the end of that season really was when we saw Rins really come into his own come on strong and it's interesting just listening to what Neil said there as well they've just about Marquez making those calculations in the middle of the race we've actually got a question in from GP Chatterbox just about that as well and what he's asked Isn't is that you the GP Chatterbox no I'm the Superbike Chatterbox oh, right, sorry um, and he's asking is Marquez now riding at 70-30 70% thinking about the championship and 30% thinking about the race wins or do you think is Marquez just always riding right at that maximum to get the best result he can 70-30 uh, I would say running 70-30 uh, 70% for wins and 30% for uh, for the championship he is actually um, uh, you know riding for championships um, but he's uh, he's a creature of victory he's a creature who wants to win he loves winning he wants to win so he's always going if he sees the opportunity if the opportunity is there 
he's going to try and win. But he does always ride with the championship in the mind. It's the lesson of 2015 for Marquez was, um, if I don't throw it away every time trying to win a race and just settle, then um, th then I can win the championship. And he he came, he took a big step forward today. I mean, things might have been different if, if the if we hadn't had the first lap uh, or the first corner crash with uh, uh, Dovichesha and Quattrararo. But even then, Dovichesha might have been able, been able to stick with him. Worst case scenario, Dovichesha would have got maybe a few points back on Marquez and Marquez still would have had uh, a been in a stronger position in the championship. Mark, Mark loves winning races. He loves winning championships more, but it's always a I think they're, they're sort of like you get down to the last battle, the, the, the last corner, the last battle, and his mind sort of he gets into this internal sort of battle within himself. Like, can I, uh, yeah, can I do this? Can I, can I restrain myself enough to actually stay uh, stay on? And it, and sometimes sometimes it gets it gets quite difficult. But for him, there's only one thing that can't. Well, there's yeah. He really, really wants to win the championship, but then, you know, if he gets a chance, he really, really wants to win the race as well. Yeah, I always think when you look at Mark, it's great to win the race, it's great to win the championship spot, it's great to beat people. <laughs> and he's a rider that just wants to do that on the last lap. Yeah. He wants to prove himself, he wants to always just take away any chance that someone has of gaining an edge on him. But again, this weekend, we saw another time where he didn't quite get that edge. Yeah, I mean, you say he wants to beat people. He really did beat people this weekend, and not so much on Sunday as on Saturday. Um, it was on Saturday morning, FP3. FP3, everyone else took two new tyres to have a go to make sure they went through to Q2. Um, Mark didn't, went out on his third run, went out for another, um, uh, went out for another, for another run, um, just on a used tyre I think they, uh, with that tyre yeah, th that was the tyre they ended up putting 20 laps on that last few runs was enough laps to, to, to get full race distance on that tyre came back in with just under 3 minutes to, uh, to go jumped on his second bike with new tyres on went out and then uh, improved his time again that such confidence and it's just mentally so uh, he's beating his, his opponents mentally by with you know that, that that sort of thing, he's he's not concerned at all about uh, about sort of any resistance from other people. He's really showing them what he's capable of and what they have to fear. Yeah, and he's been doing that all year. I remember at Jerez watching Friday, and I mean, normally we have cooler conditions in the morning, uh, hotter conditions in the afternoon. The conventional thought is, okay, we'll try um, maybe softer tires in the morning and the harder tires when it's really hot because they'll be more resistant. And Marquez was doing completely the opposite and was running at the front of both FP1 and FP2 sections using the complete opposite combinations of everyone else. And for the opposition, that must be not only so hard to predict what he's actually doing, but also just confirmation that no matter what he's on, He's there fighting at the front whenever certain guys seem to need things to work in their favor to be able to challenge him. He's there no matter what. And uh, yeah, we've spoken a lot about it this year, but along with um, the kind of mind games that he's, I think, you know, he's always been quite savvy at that. But this year, I mean, how many times have we heard him throwing out little verbal grenades at his rivals, just like sniping at Lorenzo or Rossi or Vinales for whatever he perceives to be something that is weak? Um, yeah. 
I think you, you said it earlier in the year, Davis, is his evil genius phase of his career. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. Just when just we have a question in from Drizzle Swag as well, just about this. Uh, well, a bit about Mark, a bit more about his rivals as well. And David, just uh, he's asking, just when you look back over Mark's career of all the new riders that have come through MotoGP over the last few years, Mark is the only one that's been consistent across all the classes. Obviously, we've seen plenty of riders that have been Moto Three champions struggled a bit in Moto Two, maybe won some races, but weren't quite able to be title contenders in Moto Two. Step up to Moto GP and might find their form again, but Mark's been able to do it one two fives, Moto Two, and uh, now into the Moto GP class. Yeah, but the other thing is we've seen. I mean, two of his main rivals are uh, Vinales and Rince, and both of them spent uh, just a single class. Uh, did Rince spend just one year? I know he was two years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, Vinales came across immediately after one year. Who knows what he could have done in Moto Two if it had stayed there for two years? Um, yeah, Rince. Rince got sort of a bit of a slow start in uh, in Moto Two. You're right. He he hasn't been sort of that consistent because also if you look at Marquez in 125s his first year was a bit rough and then he won a race and then he's basically never stopped winning since then first year of course 2008 was Scott Redding that was actually the rookie coming through in the class that year that was getting everyone's attention at that stage just a couple of other questions as well Uh, Guy Gisborne so Guy Anderson you asked why were they holding the Moto2 race after the MotoGP race that's obviously just that you keep on the same time schedule for TV you want to be able to start the race 2 o'clock European time for the Premier class and uh, got a couple of other questions there as well just actually related to a few things we're going to get to in a little while one of them being just uh, whether or not the uh, Yamahas are really lacking in something so that's actually one thing that we've got to talk about in a little while because this was actually a really strong weekend for Yamaha if you look at the pace of Rossi Vinales Morbidelli's had a good weekend we saw Quattararo fast all weekend so Johnny Allison we'll get to that in a couple of moments time but uh, Neil just when we go back to that Rins against Marquez battle obviously we spend all of our time talking about how great Marquez is but we've seen two races in a row now where he's lost out in that last lap we've seen two races in a row where arguably you could say he's made a mistake in those last laps as well we saw him today just uh, have that slide coming through Woodcut obviously you're pushing as hard as you can trying to get to the line and just using up that rear tyre through the race we saw the Hondas all really struggle with that rear tyre but uh, for Marquez we saw that moment on the last corner yeah yeah exactly um yeah I think he'll be I'd say he'll be hurting we know how intensely uh, he wants to well to win. That's a very obvious point, but um, I do think that uh, yeah, this one will definitely carry a bit more of a sting. He said that the the race in Austria actually hurt more because he lost points in the championship fight to Davizio, so this one wasn't so bad. But I think that's surely just him putting a brave face on it because this was well the fact that it was the second time in a row, the fact that also he led every lap. I think bar three. Uh, and then Rins essentially mugged him right at the end. Um, I'm sure that will have stung as well. And also the fact that uh, these guys had a bit of a set to um, at Brno three, four weeks ago. A um, bit of verbal uh, exchange after um, Rins thought Mark cut him up during qualifying. Uh, you know, didn't get out of his way even though he had messed his lap up. Rins said uh, Mark doesn't have respect for anyone. And well, this kind of ran on for one or two days. Um, yeah, I think this would uh, this would piss him off pretty badly. Yeah, I mean, the the nice thing about it is that uh, um, Rins uh, absolutely hates Marquez, and um, Quartararo absolutely hates Marquez, and this is exactly what we need. We need um, people to actually get. An, you, oh yeah, 
Yeah, I think so. I don't think I think they I think there's absolutely no respect. Uh, the, the, there's there's no love lo- love loss between them. Um, as for, I mean, you know, not not hate Sepang 2015 hate. But hate, as in um, the same way that McDoon hated him, uh, everyone who, who had the temerity to ride against him to try to beat him. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I think this is good. We need this kind of um, uh, acrimony. Do, yes, you need acrimony. A sport is always better when the people, uh, the people involved, actually don't like each other. Yeah, obviously the Rins and Marquez scrap that goes back to when he, when Rins was teammates with Alex Marquez. As much as anything else about Mark, it's just that sheer dynamic that came from being the teammate and feeling that your teammate was getting preferential treatment to you. But uh, David, just one thing here, we've got a question in from Tom Harbarkin as well. He's just asking about the uh, Suzuki in general. It's a bike that we can see is down on horsepower. We know it's down on horsepower. We know they've made steps forward with that. But he's just asking whether or not if Suzuki find that few brake horsepower compared to the Hondas and the other bikes on the grid, whether or not they'll still be able to maintain that sweet handling chassis they have rolling through the corners carrying the corner speed uh, I think the the answer is obviously yes because if you look at um, how far the, 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 the Suzuki has come uh, what was it 2016 whether they were, what was their first what was the Suzuki 2015 the first year in the championship they came in uh, the bike was obviously underpowered it was really really underpowered um, and it was just as sweet handling um, then as it is uh, as it is now uh, the bike now is much much faster it's only a couple of k's down on the Hondas and the Ducatis um, they can find another couple of Hondas and it'll be a little bit more difficult to turn maybe um, but just because of the sheer sort of you know momentum in, uh, momentum involved but it's one of those bikes that um, the, the fundamental nature of the bike is very very um, is very very sweet handling it's very agile um, and also as we saw out the out the final corner it has tremendous uh, traction um, it really gets an incredible amount of drive I, I think that's one of the things which is because everyone focuses on on how quickly uh, uh, the, the bike changes direction um, but not only does it change direction quickly it also gets immediately gets drive and is capable of driving out the corner to uh, so it, does, it doesn't really lose ground when it does change uh, change direction qu- quickly so I don't I really don't think that's going to be a problem and I would also say for the Yamaha it's going to be the same I mean the Yamaha really are suffering badly with um, uh, with horsepower once they find more horsepower the nature of the bike is still high corner speed all the rest of it um, in the past uh, the Yamaha had a decent top speed. It's never been the fastest, but it had sort of sufficient top speed, um, and it was just as good. It was just good then as it were, uh, as in terms of handling as it is now. Yeah, and obviously, Neil, we saw Sylvain Gintoli here this weekend. Gintoli's been the test rider for Suzuki for the last couple of years, and I was chatting to him at Suzuka for the eight hours, and he was saying just how busy the schedule was. He was flying from Europe to Japan for testing, then he'd be back to Europe for, I think he did a wild card in MotoGP between it, and then he went back for Suzuka testing, and he just seemed to be over and back to Japan the whole time. He said that Suzuki have a Japanese test team as well that'll go to one of the local Japanese tracks just to roll out any test plans and then he'll get the chance to ride the bike but we've seen that he's made huge improvements with that bike as well the engine in particular he's been the one that's been credited for that the work that he's done with the test team obviously it's led by Tom O'Kane a lot of experience there and that's been the key thing really for turning around that bike over the last year yeah yeah absolutely yeah Gintoli has been um, he has been an excellent addition to Suzuki's um, 
Suzuki's team, Suzuki's test team. Um, I think we saw him place inside the top five, two of the free practice sessions, the last time he wildcarded in Brno. Um, so that shows that he is getting to grips with, um, you know, if you speak to Tom O'Kane, it's always uh, Mitzlin front that Gintoli sort of struggled with compared to, you know, the top guys in the class. He still was a little bit behind them in terms of that. Um, but you can see that he's still learning that, making progress with that. Um, and I think just going back a little bit to the question you were just asked there from one of our listeners, um, they brought a new engine to Assen last year, and it's believed that it had like, double figures more horsepower than the previous engine, yet it didn't lose any of the kind of agility handling that it had, nor any of the sort of like smooth traction that was, or that is one of its real strong points now. So I think Suzuki is like a real example of being able to gradually build the engine up without losing any of those, uh, of those key characteristics of the bike, which made it fantastic in the first place. Yeah, and just uh, moving on then. And Gintoli obviously is, is clearly part of that, one of the reasons behind that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like the work that Gintoli's done seems to be really well regarded. Of course, obviously a former Superbike World Champion, lots of experience on lots of different makes of bikes, and he's really been able to bring that experience to the fore. He's ridden lots of different tyres, so he knows what to expect, what to understand from that feedback as well, and that seems to have played the key role first. But uh, we'll just move on to the next topic. It actually brings us to a question from Porcupine as well. I'm not too sure if that's a given name or just a handle, but uh, he's asking, will Dovi ever catch a break? break and after what we saw today David seems like he's going to be waiting another wee while yeah I mean uh, I think we've talked about this before that Mark Marcus luck is always it, it reminds me so much of um, uh, Valentino Rossi like 2004-2005 someone would fall off uh, he'd fall off and be on her or be able to get back on and score points someone else would fall off and it would completely ruin their championship um, it seems the same way with with mark now whenever something happens it always happens to sort of you know the, the dice always roll sixes for him and ones for everyone else um, again Dovichoso did absolutely nothing wrong um, a Quartararo made a small mistake really unfortunately high sides off the bike uh, Dovi leaves Dovi nowhere to go and Dovi gets flung into the air um, to an extent I mean Mark Marquez qualified on pole Andrea Dovicioso qualified seventh there's there's if you're in seventh you've got six bikes ahead of you where something can go wrong and uh, you have to you have to try and avoid so yeah it's um if Dovi, I mean, yeah, if Dovi wants to avoid a break, then he really needs to be on the front row every single uh, uh, every single race. But it's not it's 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 not easy. Luck seems to be on the side of Mark Marcus at the moment. Yeah, Neil, that sort of brings us nicely to one of the biggest issues that Dovi has, and it's just that relentless nature that Marquez has. We see it in the free practice sessions where Mark doesn't put in a fresh tyre through most of the practice sessions. He's just trying to focus on that race simulation, get the most he can from those sessions. And then pretty much just right at the end of a session, throw in the soft tyres, throw in a new tyre just to be able to prove, ah, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'll, I'll be ready for qualifying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you find that these mistakes creep in whenever you're up against a guy who's constantly pushing the limits at the front and maybe is a little bit beyond your limit. Um, Davizioso has been unlucky this year with uh, his two DNFs. They haven't been his fault. Um, but, I mean, there's not been a weekend where Marquez hasn't been there fighting for the win. Um, 
yeah, even at Assen, he was up there most sessions, you know, one of the, the leading names. And I think in the end, he only finished one or two seconds off Vinales, who won the race. Um, reminds me a little bit of uh, Tom Ludy in Moto2 at the moment. He's actually having a pretty good season for a guy that's just spent the year in MotoGP, didn't score a point and has come back down into Moto2. But we're, uh, we're judging him quite harshly because Alex Marquez, up until today, of course, uh, was just relentlessly winning, finishing, sec finishing second. And, um, you know, anytime Luti had a fifth or a sixth, which isn't a bad result, it's like, well, yeah, Luti's not really doing that much. And that then adds cr extra pressure to him and then he crashes out of the race in Brno, for example. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's I think you, you can see these mistakes creep into rivals' games whenever the level is so high. And with Marquez at this time, it's probably as strong as he's ever been. And we're looking at one of the best guys that's ever ridden, raced a motorbike. This is the absolute highest level you could ever hope to imagine. You know, guys like Kevin Schwantz and Wayne Rainey would probably be making mistakes this year trying to catch up with and stay up with Mark Marquez. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, Dovi, can he catch a break? Uh, if Marquez maybe um, injures himself and has to sit out six or seven races, then you might see Davizioso's luck improve. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. It's just that factor that you're up against the best we've ever seen and you need all your ducks to be in a row. And this is a time when you're really not able to get everything in a row because it's so competitive. You can have a one week where the Yamaha's there, the Honda the Suzuki, anything like that, the Ducati. So it's really tough for Davi. And one of the questions that we got asked as well is whether or not the title's over, David. Oh, the title's been over for months. Um, yeah, since Barcelona, it, really. Yeah, really, really. Uh, Barcelona, uh, Barcelona was definitely the, sort of the, the nail in the, of the coffin of the title. Um, one of the reasons the title, we know that the title is over is because um, Mark said it himself in the press uh, in the press conference today. Uh, he equalled his um, he equalled his worst his, his worst finish in the championship again. Um, second place uh, when he doesn't win. He finishes second. He's only had one, uh, well, one DNF or one, uh, one, yeah, one DNF. That was uh, that was Austin, and the rest he's either finished first or on a bad day he finishes second. And that's it. that's just re relentless. The last time he finished lower than second in a race, so he finished a race and was lower than second was Bruno last year at the start of August 2018. Yeah, and the other thing is um, he uh, because he crashed during practice here, I think. And that was this first crash since. Oh yeah, since uh, qualifying at Le Mans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For basically three months, three months without crashing. Five days. Yeah. I did some. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, right. There you go. There you go. I mean, that's uh, that's a huge turnaround as well. I think he's crashed half as much as he did um, uh, as he did last year. Last year he's, uh, he had, I think, last year by yeah, Austria. Yeah, last year by Austria he had like eleven or twelve crashes, and he only had six um, uh, this year. So yeah, there's there's a real difference. I think this is. I think we're seeing Mark Marquez at his peak, and the question is. Um, when you're at the peak, usually the only way you can go is down. Um, is he going to plateau or what happens next? Yeah, I think that the chances of Mark falling off a cliff are pretty slim at this <laughs> stage. But Neil, just um, when you look at the crashes that we had for Davian Quattraro during this race, we saw that the aftermath of it was pretty scary looking injuries potentially for both riders. Luckily, it seems that both are relatively okay but could be a couple of nasty concussions and different mm. things this is one mm. thing where maybe we're seeing as well just the added benefit of having the new helmet regulations and things like that just try and improve that safety yeah yeah um 
Yeah, we spoke to Cordero this afternoon, and he was he seemed all right. He seemed a bit, well, obviously a bit like withdrawn, as you would be after such a scary incident. Um, Davizioso was airlifted to the hospital for uh, he had a, a CT scan to make sure everything was okay. I think he David uh, he, he, he lost some memory. Yeah, he yes. had memory loss for a little while. Yeah, but um, I think Todotti was saying he had like 15 minutes that he wasn't sure about, and then the memory started coming back, and he started arguing about, you know, did I finish? Uh, did I finish the race? Or uh, yeah, he thought he made the mistake that led to the crash yeah. and he was like oh what am I talking no, about no I didn't make I've, a mistake of course that wasn't me exactly. yeah that wasn't my fault writers of that memory <laughs> yeah so concussions to blame for all sorts of things <laughs> then yeah um, yeah and then Cordero I think started feeling dizzy after he spoke to us I don't know why someone would start to feel like that after uh, <laughs> dealing with a load of journalists but um, he yeah was yeah, it's he, usually nausea rather than uh, <laughs> rather than yeah, dizziness yeah disgust yeah yeah but um, he eventually was taken to hospital. He had some scans as well, but I think he was diagnosed with a concussion. Um, if Davizioso has lost memory for 15 minutes, as Davide Todotzi said, that's concussion as well. Yeah. Mizano um, test is a couple of days away, and uh, I would be slightly wary about either of those guys taking part in that test because we're supposed to be in an age when, uh, you know, Concussion well, we have is, concussion protocols yeah, to deal with these concussions things. are taken a lot more seriously and I think you know that should basically rule both of them out of it yeah I mean for, for Quattararo that's not such a big deal because you know he's he's on the the, the, the full satellite bike sort of um, uh, so he really all he'd, be, all he'd be doing is riding around testing setup um, for Dovicioso it's a much much bigger deal because they would have had um, uh, work to do the, the one thing about the Misano test because the Misano test happens two weeks before Misano most of the time they'd be set they'd be working on setup anyway so what they'll do is they'll put um, uh, Piro on uh, Dovi's bike and tell him to f work on the work on uh, find a setup which which, which Dovi can win with I think that's that's going to be sort of his their, their his task there Neil we've another question in and it's basically just saying to beat Mark you have to be willing to push right to the line and put everything on the limit and uh, he doesn't see other riders willing to do that. What do you think of that? This seems to be the golden era of MotoGP and there is those fine lines between everyone else. Do you think that we've got any instance where there's riders not quite riding to the same limit as Marquez or the same 100%? Uh, well, yeah, there's no rider that's consistently doing that. Um, yeah, no rider this year is as consistent as him as we've discussed. Um, I mean, we've seen riders riding to the limit and possibly over the limit to beat him this year rins today Davizioso last or two weeks ago um, but yeah consistently I don't think they're able to do that but then it's, it's consistently who has the, the kind of the feel who's able to, to find the limits as, as well and as within their ability as he is I mean there's no, there's no one on the grid that's able to do what he does um, with that so uh, yeah I would say he's fairly unique in that shit um, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of riders that, I mean, yeah, there's riders that push the limits a lot. Jack Miller obviously comes to mind, but yeah, no one consistently. Yeah, and obviously David as well. In this era, it's so difficult to make those margins as well. Everyone's on their 100% at all the times. It's just that Mark has that bike, that package, that team around him that just lets him feel that little bit more comfortable every time he goes out. Yeah, I mean, it's about confidence. Um, he has enormous confidence in everything. He has he he, he has uh, confidence to um, to put the bike where he wants to do what he wants. Um, uh, I, the other thing is, I mean, like all truly transformational riders, 
the ones that have come before before him, the the, the Rossies and the Stoners and uh, the the Sheens, the the, the Swanses, the um, uh, the the Rainies, the Lawsons. Um, he's moved the game again. He's moved the goalposts, and um, he's really exploring the limit. He understands the limit. I mean, like today, I can't remember one of the riders at the debrief saying, "Yeah, yeah, nearly, uh, you know, nearly crashed five times." Um, that's what you have to do. Everyone is at the absolute limit. Everyone is nearly crashing. But Mark is capable of managing it just that little bit better than everyone else. He's better, better at sliding the bike, at managing the risk. Okay, so a couple of questions then, again, from people watching and listening. And uh, David, just one for you from Marge. He's asking um, whether or not, uh, or what you'd she. do. Sorry, she. Uh, she's asking uh, if sorry, you Marge. were in, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you were in Lorenzo's boots, um, where do you go from here? Uh, that is a good question. The uh, riders riders are afraid of two things. Um, they're afraid of uh, spinal injuries and they're afraid of head injuries. Um, anything else uh, can either be healed or chopped off or whatever. They want to be able to ride. What they don't want to happen is to be uh, sort of stuck in a wheelchair or have or have some kind of brain injury. Um, I think he was genuinely scared with the, with this injury. Um, uh, I think he seemed a little bit more confident. I think actually just finishing a race and being faster than he was during practice made a, made a difference. Uh, what he does next, I think he tr just gets back to riding again. tries to figure out the uh, uh, tries to figure out the the, the Honda um, and starts to think about what he's going to do next year uh, sometime in uh, uh, sometime at the beginning of next year. He has a real opportunity. Uh, because he knows that Gigi wants him. He knows that Ducati wants him back. So he that he already has some kind of a safety net for 2021. Um, I think we it, it, he will take it from there. And Neil, as a bit of a follow-on question, uh, Matthias Weiss is asking, uh, what do you, do you think of the performances of, as he calls it, the fallen racers, Zarco and Lorenzo? Obviously, Today's Arco was certainly a fallen race. He was a bit of a bowling ball racer. But uh, what do you think of their performances? Um, this weekend? This weekend and then in general, in general. as well, I think. Um, yeah, I think Lorenzo this weekend was... I mean, it was tough to watch a man of, of Lorenzo standing, a guy of his track record, to be so far off, to be four seconds a lap slower than the fastest guys. That's not where Jorge Lorenzo should be. I must say, I'm quite impressed that he actually made it to the end and managed to score some points. Like, let's give him some credit for that because I thought his his pride would maybe get the better of him. Um, and the fact that he was so far off uh, would maybe think, or lead him to think, you know, this isn't worth it. What am I doing out here? Um, but he plowed on. He kept his head down. Um, he knows that this isn't going to be an easy time. He knows that probably Mizano, maybe even Aragon are going to be pretty rough as well as he gets back to, to full fitness the guy admitted to feeling fear still on friday and when you're riding with fear i mean you're going to be nowhere near your best whatsoever um lorenzo's admitted to that in the past before um let's not forget that the guy is hard as nails this is a guy that finished fifth uh was at times posting the fastest laps of the race in Assen two days after breaking his collarbone having it operated on and the metal plate inserted into it um, you know he doesn't need to demonstrate his toughness to anyone after those kind of feats um, so yeah Lorenzo this weekend I think there are positives to take from Sunday 
And sorry uh, the uh, about injuries. It was funny because he mentioned the injuries today, and he said that he the last time he felt this kind of fear was again 2013, but it was in Laguna Seca when he came back after breaking his collarbone for the second time at uh, Saxonry because uh, he he had that heroic effort at um, uh, Aston where he fell off, broke his collarbone, flew back to Barcelona, had the operation, came back, raced, finished fifth on uh, uh, on the Saturday as it was then. Two weeks later, he fell off at uh, Saxonry and broke his collarbone. Um, uh, two weeks later, he, after having another operation on his collarbone, he was back and he was um, uh, he, he was getting you know he, he was he was racing again. But then he was really really racing with fear. So I think that's the uh, uh, that was the mindset that he had here. Yeah. Also, the fact that he now has no other option for next year, uh, it seems that. Uh, he didn't exactly deny that there had been talks with uh, Ducati on Thursday. I think we can say that that did happen. Um, and, uh, well, the fact that that is not completely ruled out, there's no seats available for him to change to for 2020. It's now just, well, this is it, and I have to get on with it. Um, so there is an element of that, I think, now from here until the end of the season for Lorenzo. Uh, Zarco, I thought, uh, actually rode okay this weekend. Um, you know, he was the second KTM. He was just behind Paul Espargaro in qualifying. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the most uh, intelligent move in the race. Uh, to take out Miguel Oliveira, um, the guy that you know is being touted as uh, taking over his seat for next year, um, but he was at least in a fight that included Paul Espargaro and Miguel Oliveira, so he was fighting there to be the top KTM. So yeah, decent from Zarco compared to what we've seen. I mean, he was way back of Oliveira in Berno, um, uh, at the Rebel Ring. Um, so yeah, there's a few little rays of light for both of them. Um, let's hope it continues because you know we both know that Lorenzo and Zarco should be up there fighting at the front. And just a bit of a follow-on from Lorenzo, but more general about Honda. David, we saw a lot of the Hondas struggling with that rear tyre. Cal Crutchlow talked a lot about it. We saw Marquez at the end of the race also struggling as well. But uh, what were you hearing just in terms of the tyres for this weekend? And obviously, a new track surface always a bit of a challenge for Michelin. The biggest problem was actually the fact that it was so hot. No one was expecting it to be 31 degrees in Silverstone. Uh, the, the problem is Michelin have to submit the list of tyres they want to use for each race uh, in Feb. I think in February before the first race. So they have to take educated guesses at what the uh, weather was going to be like after what happened last year. If you'd have put money on it being 31 degrees on race day in uh, in Silverstone, um, you would have got a slap around the head rather than any money off of it. Track temperature of 31 Fahrenheit last week <laughs> yeah, pretty much yeah exactly 31 kelvin um <laughs> uh, the um the the, the so th it was a lot hotter i think uh, because there was a, a few reports of some blistering on some of the tires um uh, on the hard tire they had the extra hard but it hadn't been hot um hot enough for them to try the extra hard so the, the the hard was probably a fraction just a tiny fraction too uh, 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 too soft and no one had experience and no one was going to gamble on the uh, uh, on the extra hard um, would have been interesting if someone had taken a punt but I don't think anyone felt that they were in real trouble and they needed to, to, to try it or at least no one competitive 
Yeah, Neil, just a couple of questions just about tyres from Paul Leggett and also from VJ. They've both asked pretty much the same questions just by Valentino Rossi and the comparison between himself and Maverick Vinales and just wondering whether or not there was different tyre choices between the two riders and uh, also what's the answer for Rossi's tyre problems. Obviously, this was a weekend, Neil, where we saw Rossi really back on form. He was fast the whole way through the weekend. The Yamaha was working well. We saw even more Bedelli with his, what I think was the season's best result from or at least as good yeah, a performance did, yeah. as we've seen all the way through the year and uh, it did look like the Yamaha had the pace but again we saw just Rossi having that little bit of a struggle just to maintain the pace of some of the other guys yeah Rossi had the pace qualified second um, was able to pull a real fast lap out of the hat whenever he needed to through free practice and in qualifying uh, it started well was right up with Marquez for the first couple of laps we thought okay this is going to be he's going to be right in the middle of this and then uh, yeah he dropped back I think from half distance he said that uh, yeah he really had to back off quite a bit um, due to an issue with three but interestingly as opposed to Cal Crutchlow and Jack Miller who insinuated that they had bad tires um, and were more or less pointing the finger at Mitchell and Rossi was saying it was more to do with his setup and um, yeah I mean we know that Vinales' great strength is uh, his ability in the final five or six laps of a race almost uh, irritatingly so where it's like well, can you not do this just a little bit earlier you know like today around lap 11 or 12 he's losing a couple of tenths of a second and you just know that the charge is coming but it's like you're giving yourself too much work to do um, I yeah I actually didn't uh, get to see Rossi today. I think you were there, David. But um, you know he said that this is something to do with setup, uh, to do with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. His, his riding preference. Yeah, he, he basically sort of owned up for you know just didn't get the setup right. I think the, 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 there's two issues here. One of them is that um, first of all the the Yamaha is really down on power. Um, it's 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 losing too much power, and so I think um, uh, Vinales said in the press conference, you know, we're having to make up as much as possible everywhere else around there, and that's that's asking a lot of tyres. They're having to use the edge of the tyre a lot just because they can't use any acceleration. If they could get, uh, you know, if they could get have a nice little double digit horsepower boost for 2000 and uh, 2020, um, they'd be competitive again, and that would also help solve Valentino Rossi's problems. R Rossi also has the disadvantage of being a little bit a little bit taller and a little bit heavier um, he is more or less the same build as Morbidelli rather than Vinales uh, and that seems to make a difference as well although um, uh, I spoke to Morbidelli today and Morbidelli basically said yeah what happened was uh, we went back to the setting for that that that, Ra that Ramon Forcada had, had used back in Qatar um, because that was the best one they'd, they'd started with a really good package and uh, felt really comfortable and tried to improve it but every try everything they tried to do to improve it just went backwards um, so they've been going round and round and round in circles so uh, I think that's interesting to see what uh, what Morbidelli can do for the rest of the season yeah, so I'm interested to see what Franco can do because obviously for me this is the first time I've been at a race in MotoGP since Jerez at the start of the year and even then I was only there for a couple of days so it was interesting to see which of the riders were adapting well that have sort of either gone to new bikes or quite early in their MotoGP career I think obviously Frank was in his second year in the class but first year with the Yamaha and he looked an awful lot more comfortable with that bike this week than what I expected him to look like there's a few other riders struggled a bit compared to what I, where I thought they would be at this stage but Franco looks like maybe it's a Silverstone thing because as I said all the Yamahas were fast but that he's actually made that bit of a step now yeah well he needed this weekend because he'd had a couple of pretty tough outings it has to be said um, Aston I think was the last time we saw him 
looked good toward the front. He had a tough Saxon ring. Uh, it was taken on the first lap, Bernou by Zarco. Um, and then the Rebel ring was a bit of an unmitigated disaster from his end because Quadraro, his teammate, was on the podium. All three other Yamahas were inside the top five. Um, but yeah, um, I would say, you know, it's probably more of a Silverstone thing. And Franco is like quite a smooth rider. So it came to him in that respect. Um, yeah, I would uh, maybe wait until Mizano before saying that, you know, Franco's back uh, to see how he gets on there. Yeah, and a couple of questions in as well, David. One of them, which is a terrifying question to have asked anyone, but is when Neil brings in the bass, does your tummy flutter a little bit? <laughs> and I think it's best <laughs> if we all leave that on said. It's um, probably similar to what you were saying earlier about uh, my tummy. My tummy always flutters when Neil speaks. <laughs> I was going to say, we're sitting at the dinner table, we're waiting for our food, so my tummy's rumbling, but that's nothing to do with your voice, Neil. That's just bit of hunger now it's after 10 o'clock but another question David just for you I'm giving you all the easy questions David all of the easy questions we've got a question in just continuing the Yamaha theme saying Valentino Rossi able to win races but not able to win championships anymore I think that's a perfectly good um, I is think he able to win races uh, yeah I think if the Yamaha had more power um, I, I think that Maverick can use what he's got to win races uh, because it, it, he can fight with that bike with uh, with a little bit less power. I think he suffers less with less power. Quattararo is the same. Quattararo can you know, use the strength of the bike because he's not as heavy and he's not as uh, uh, and he's not as tall. I think Rossi suffers a little bit with that. I think he can absolutely win another race, um, uh, but I. I don't think he can win another championship. But then again, I don't think anyone can win. Anyone whose name doesn't rhyme with Kark Carquez is going to be winning a championship anytime soon until um, uh, until a certain Spaniard um, finds a way to lose. Neil, can you say Kark Carquez really fast five times in a row? Uh, probably not without uh, you know making some kind of terrible slur. <laughs> against someone or, or some something so I won't try it in front of a live audience yes yeah, so certainly the struggle for me would be real but uh, just when we look at uh, the weekend as a whole we'll get to the, the usual topics we have at the end of a show on the Paddock Pass podcast but when we look at the weekend as a whole David who's your big winner um, my big do you know what my big winner I think is Silverstone um, because I mean it was a shame there weren't so many people the, 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 the attendance was down a lot um, uh, 50,000 compared to 70 something thousand last year I think um, people really missed out it was fantastic racing in all three classes fantastic weather uh, a great weekend the surface is astonishing really really good I'm really interested to see how it develops uh, to see how it changes over the next sort of you know year see what happens when we come back uh, this time next year or whenever it is because God knows what's going to happen to the calendar but anyway um, uh, I, I think they Silverstone really did their best in every single respect this uh, uh, this time they had racing that I mean the, there's nothing you can do about the weather um, they got lucky with the weather but they did everything else to try to make this a great event and it was a great event and a gr and this is going to be one of those races which people remember yeah uh, if you combine the winning margins of all three classes uh, today I think it's seven tenths of a second uh, MotoGP it was the second closest finish in the four-stroke era uh, ever 
Um, I mean, you know, the, yeah, the racing, well, the, the, that's, those stats really speak for themselves. We had three fantastic races and, uh, yeah, Silverstone again uh, proves itself to be a great, one of, the tr one of the calendar's great circuits. Yeah, this is, for me, one of the best tracks we go to because the racing's always good across all the classes. This is always one of those tracks that just seems to just have great racing and, as you said, Neil, close across all three, really good stuff. And just for the crowd figures as well like i was quite surprised when the crowd figures came in because it wasn't a quiet race it seemed quite busy as well so again silverstone i thought did a really good job and david i actually had silverstone earmarked as my big winner as well so neil i'm going to ask you just so i've got a little bit of time to try and come up with someone else uh as the big winner uh, you're a big winner okay right i think his uh, his name rhymes with balix brins uh yeah so i'm going to go with alex rins for my big winner because i mean yeah it was his best ride his best ever ride uh he took on mark marquez in a, a race long fight and he won uh and it was the the temerity the way in which he won he rode around the outside of marquez uh on the penultimate lap he actually crossed the line, I think, a thousandth of a second faster or ahead of Marquez then. At that point, he made a mistake. He thought that that was the final lap. So to go through that and then realize, oh, God, I've got to do this again. Uh, yeah, he won it by the skin of his teeth, but what a way to win it. And the fact that he changed it up in the final corner, you know, instead of going outside, went inside. Um, yeah, tre tremendous stuff from Rins. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, comfortably his best showing in, in Grand Prix racing. Yeah, I think for me, I actually, I thought um, Augusto did very well in Moto2. I thought that was a really good performance to come back because Navarro looked fast all the way through the weekend. I thought actually, though, Vinales for me, because he was fast all the way through the race. He gave up a little bit of ground and things like that in those early laps, but it wasn't as pronounced as we've seen at other times through the season. I thought he was able to hold his pace well at the start. When he got through on Rossi, he was able to bridge him, and Rossi had been faster than him for much of the weekend, and it was just a clear sign that Vinales has turned that corner again because we all know what he can do when he's got the bike underneath, and we all know what he can do whenever he's feeling comfortable. It's just about trying to get that full tank fuel and really get that performance going and hopefully this is a sign of what we see for the rest of the season because we all want to see as many riders up there as possible capable of being able to fight with Marquez they mightn't be able to beat him over a 19-20 race season but Marquez is beatable any given weekend and when we go to Misano and Aragon it's going to be really interesting to see what sort of comes through from that so Neil give David first dibs on the biggest winner Let's put him last for the biggest loser from this weekend. Who's the big loser? Uh, I guess, you know, there's a couple of contenders there. Quartararo is maybe an obvious choice because, uh, you know, he was a pre-race favourite. He was the guy I was tipping to, to push Marquez hardest in the race. Um, but I'm going to go with uh, Danilo Petrucci, actually, because uh, it's a bit of a worrying slump now for, for Danilo, uh, who was rock solid in the first half of the season didn't finish outside the top six once uh finished every race uh, claimed that brilliant first victory at Mugello and was third in the championship at the sax spring and that was after two of ducati's worst tracks um in the past we've seen danilo have really difficult race weekends just bad tracks bogey tracks um that's not really something that you can have whenever you're a factory ducati rider uh, also if you look at the last couple of years, there has been a worrying drop-off for Danilo in the second half or the last third of the season. And maybe he's he's been handed a couple of reprieves because of the weather. We know he's a great weather rider. Uh, but yeah, this was the third weekend in the bounce when he was a bit below par. And okay, he went on to beat Jack Miller on the final lap, but I think Miller was struggling really badly with, uh, with rear tire 
concerns, not concerns, sorry, issues. Um, and, uh, you know, Danilo was able to end up passing him. But, yeah, third race weekend in a row when he's been off, off color. And, yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm looking at Mizano, maybe not so bad, but um, he's real bad record at some of the flyaway races. Aragon as well has been always been tough for him. Um, yeah. Well, well, I mean, if Maverick Vinales is the uh, is the testing champion, then um, Danilo Petrucci is the FP3 champion because he is really, really quick. The big thing that uh, the, the the Petrucci said, and he said it again today, is uh, in the morning it's cooler, uh, conditions are perfect. Um, I uh, can get the best out of it, and he's fast. He's he's often. You know, top three, four in uh, in FP3 and FP1 and on uh, Sunday morning warm up, and then we get to the race and the track temperature goes up 15, 20 degrees, and the grip goes away, and Petrucci simply can't really. Uh, he loses traction, and if he tries to move weight to the back of the bike to gain traction again, then he takes weight off the front of the bike, and so he loses front end feel. Um, I think that it, it's probably a result of his weight because he is a large. He's a, he's a large gentleman. I'm for a MotoGP rider. For, uh, yeah, exactly. These are all 4A MotoGP riders. Yeah, I was going to say, a specimen. <laughs> that's right, yes. <laughs> exactly, yes, that's that's right. I mean, if you you know, all I'd need is, to lose is about 40 kilos, and I could be a MotoGP rider too. Um, also, uh, might need a spot of talent. But yeah, his... his um, his weight, I think, really makes uh, makes life very, very difficult for him in a number of complicated ways. Yeah, I was once told you could do it losing about 15 kilos, Stevie, and then you'll need to lose an another 10 kilos, and then you might be at where you need to be. But for me, the biggest loser... That's just, for, that's just for everyday business. Yeah, I was just, yeah, that was just for walking around, to be quite honest. But uh, for me, the, the biggest loser, though, wasn't Petrucci. It was Davi, because... Obviously, he has the crash. He has a bad knock in that crash as well, taken out to the hospital. And uh, hopefully, as we said earlier on, 100% for Davi. But uh, this was a weekend where Ducati just didn't seem to have that pace with either of their riders. We saw Jack Miller was on the front row of the grid. and But it was just a, a struggle for, for Davi for me through the course of the weekend. Yeah, it was it was a tough one for him. Um, although we... I think he could have been in the top five, which wouldn't have been a, a terrible result for him. Um, he said that actually one of the big issues in the first three free practice sessions was because of the resurfacing change to a lot of the camber in the corners. He said he was actually just on the wrong line in a lot of places, and it was um, a pretty intense meeting, analytical meeting with his crew and his crew chief after FP3, where they realized, hold on a second, you're actually losing like two or three tenths alone in this one corner. That's, that's not normal. That, that can't just be, you know, you're bikes like little intermittent losses here and there it must be because you're approaching it wrong and he attacked certain corners in a different way in fp4 and suddenly he was he was up there fighting for second more or less um so i think yeah he could have been there um but yeah he was it was always going to be a race weekend where he was, he was going to lose points to, to mark and then the crash obviously just topped it all off whatever slim hopes he harbored uh, are, are now gone and whatever slim hopes we have of getting dinner seems to be getting <laughs> further and further away. So, David, we're just going to wrap up in just a moment as well. But uh, what what did you make of Davi? Um, yeah, he, the, the poor, poor lad can, uh, can't get a break, as we said before. And also, um, not only did he crash and lose 
20 odd you know lose a lot of points to uh, to, to Mark Marquez uh, he also probably lost an engine because the bike uh, the, 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 the bike caught on fire we'll have to wait and see maybe they got to it but you know they'll have sprayed uh, that uh, horrible foam all over it um, and the, that's never good for a it's never good for a bike uh, so we'll have to wait and see as uh, Neil said he made a big a really big step once he figured out that he was taking the wrong lines everywhere uh, and I think he could have been competitive um, I think that will also be a knock to him just having that chance to compete being taken away and yeah, the championship is pretty much over now for him yeah, I was actually talking to a couple of riders just about the track surface as well, Neil. And one thing they were saying was that just because it had been resurfaced so much, some of the places where there were big bumps, some of the places where there were joints from old surfaces, some of the places where there were issues in the past were not an issue anymore. And they had to spend a long time trying to really figure out where you could be aggressive, where maybe in the past you had to be a little bit passive through his action. So, as you said, it just took Davi a bit of time to get himself up to speed. But just to continue with David, it's out there about the engines as well. Obviously, you have your engine allocation. A lot of the teams have that bit of a comfort level. But once you lose an engine, suddenly you can get yourself a little bit tight by the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you might have to be a little bit conservative with uh, one or two of the engines that you've got left. Maybe uh, turn the power down just ever so slightly. Um, and with some pretty big horsepower circuits coming up, um, in the, uh, the final part of the year, yeah, that could that could cost Ducati dear because we know that Honda obviously has made a massive step in that department. Yeah, and uh, I'll bring us. To, well, sorry, this, this moment, who's uh, who is your loser of the weekend? David? Uh, well. Um, I'm a loser, baby. It's me, obviously. No, the uh, biggest biggest loser this weekend is um, uh, Alex Marquez, I think, because he was on such a roll. Um, He's 35 points ahead in the championship. Yeah, but, how many, but he could have been a lot more points ahead in the championship if he hadn't have fallen off while he was leading the race, which seems to be a, um, not an, a suboptimal way of trying to win, uh, uh, win championships. Um, You're a fickle beast. He was your big winner two weeks ago, I think. <laughs> he was my big winner, that's right. Yes, I am. Me lately, <laughs> You're only as good as your last race, <laughs> Neil Morrison. And <laughs> Alex Marquez managed to fall off in his last race. I still think um, uh, he's... In an incredible uh, there really has been a genuine cha change in in Marquez in at Marquez Alex um, I think he's a I think he can really be competitive I think he's going to win a championship whether it's this year or next year he's definitely going to win a championship at some point and he's going to earn it um, but you there was this was a flash of the old Marquez the the, the, the old the old Alex who would throw it throw it away um, at, at a really, really sort of inconvenience uh, at the worst possible moment. Yeah, I can't really argue too much with you, Dave, because I've actually written Alex Marquez here <laughs> as a reminder for me that he was up there in, in my thoughts for it as well, because possibly one of the most frustrating things for the race wasn't so much Marquez's crash, it was the fact that we had to watch him walk all the way back to pit lane and into his box and then take his helmet off and then see this look of pure dejection. And he's just thinking, Marquez is clearly thinking, there had to have been a quicker way back to the box rather than walking around this way. And every photographer knows that there's a quicker way back from there. But for Alex, you know, maybe he just uh, had to take that bit of time. Yeah, exactly. It was it it was um, it was almost comical the amount of time that he that he really just had to walk. There was no way he could get a scooter to get back. Normally, what happens is you fall off, you jump on the back of a scooter, and then sort of your your uh, 
quickly ushered into the back of the garage or into the truck or whatever, so you, where you don't have to put up with it. But this was like everywhere, it, and there was like almost like a live cam on. It was the live cam Alex Marquez walk of shame. It's um, the uh, yeah, the, the TV director seemed to be really lapping it up. I felt quite sorry for him. It's good shots in it, though, all the same. But I, I have to say that for um, for Alex though, Neil as you said 35 point lead in the championship but Moto 2's actually going through that bit of a transition and we've seen lots of riders have flashes through the course of this year Remy Gardner at the start of the year good race again today from Remy to get himself up into closing stages into the top 5 Brad Binder had a great race we saw a great battle for the for the win as well yeah it was good it was a really really good race yeah um, yeah guys like Navarro Augusto Fernandez even Remy Gardner yeah, I think uh, the health, the future of Moto Two is in a pretty pretty good place because those guys are all staying put for next year, um, and they're all going to be, I think, uh, you know, guys that can genuinely think uh, can push Marquez in the, the title race. Um, I think the only regret I do have is that KTM had such issues at the start of the year because this would have been a genuinely brilliant. Uh, championship slugfest if Brad Binder was just a little bit closer in the points because uh, what he's been doing in the last five races take Bruno out of the equation but uh, in the other four races I mean watching Binder it's been like sort of David and Goliath stuff it's like should not be there and it's you, you can just see the way he's riding that he is making all the difference I think there hasn't been a clearer indication or a clearer example of the rider making all the difference in Moto2 since Marquez, Mark Marquez that is, than Binder in the last couple of races because yeah, I mean there's no other KTM close um, and yeah, I think he is, I, I still maintain that he's the he's the best rider in the class this year but um, you know, chassis has let him down for so much of it. Did, did you say David and Goliath shouldn't be there or David Emmett shouldn't be there? <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, one more thing about Moto, because it's, it's a good point Neil makes, uh, Moto2 next year is going to be absolutely phenomenal because it looks like there's going to be a bunch of people uh, leaving the MotoGP class, there's going to be a lot of open seats, there's going to be a lot of young riders doing, going absolutely all out, giving everything because they know it's their best shot at getting a decent ride in, uh, in, in MotoGP in 2021. So yeah, 20, uh, Moto2 2020 could be absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and uh, it's been a real rebirth for the class as well over the last few while as well. So I think the change for the new engine this year has made a massive difference. It's brought it more in line where it needs to be and certainly looks like we've got that intermediate class where hopefully we're able to develop the riders again like what we saw at times in the past as well and give them that springboard into MotoGP. And for for us, Neil, what's the, the plan now for the next week while before Mizano? You having any time back home in Barcelona? Uh, yeah. Quite a lot of time back on Barcelona because we've got a mad busy uh, end of September and then October is completely cocoa bananas. So yeah, uh, two weekends off, going to be making the most of that, spend some time at home and uh, yeah, recharging the batteries, ready for the final push. Yourself? Well, for me, I've just got to get myself ready for Portimao Superbike. So I've got another week's holidays in the summer break and then uh, that's me back to work. And uh, David, you've got a bit of time just to go riding the bike. Uh, yes, both motorised and unmotorised, that is definitely the plan. Um, and enjoying the decent weather, which would be nice. Uh, 
Oh yes, bicycles. Yes, yes. You've you've seen pictures of my hipster bike, man. I should be uh, I should be riding my hipster bike up and down uh, the Dutch mountain, and uh, and enjoying it very much. One time, isn't it? Oh yeah, category one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, that's the Dutch classification. But it is. Uh, it's uh, one day I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you people come over to my house and cycle up that hill and then listen to you wheezing once you get to the top. Be quite honest. I'm not sure what's more terrifying that uh, David inviting us over to his house or going cycling up the Dutch hill, but. Uh, David, with that uh, cynical voice, we really should be able to talk some of our listeners into becoming patrons for the podcast as well. Obviously, on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, you're able to become a Patreon supporter, and that's for as little as $3 a month. And uh, we've been pushing a, a lot of new content onto that exclusive just for our Patreon subscribers and Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in the podcast, want to help send Neil and David to MotoGP races, make sure to take out that uh, subscription. It's $3 a month, so it's not too much it's less than a pint and uh, it certainly would give us more more enjoyment than a couple of pints Neil absolutely yeah exactly lots of good stuff there from the Austrian GP we took a look at um, Joanne Zarco some of the things that he was saying whenever he first got off the KTM and um, yeah we had some extra content regarding Jorge Lorenzo and his flirtation with Ducati. We're going to be putting some more stuff up after this weekend, I'm sure, regarding maybe Yamaha, maybe regarding Quartararo and Rins as well. So, uh, yeah, join us on Patreon and, uh, well, yeah, make the show go on. Yeah, we tried to do something a bit different this weekend as well with the Periscope tie-in as well and the questions from listeners and people watching. <laughs> you, you can see as well it's, uh, it's a bit of a hurry on to get finished off but uh, we tried doing a few different things this week with the periscope and uh, us taking the listener questions and uh, again that's something that we'll look to do in the future as well and try and make sure that we're able to try and just get a little bit more integration in the coming shows as well this was a good opportunity to do it Silverstone nice pub good friendly staff as well just uh, they're very keen to get the to get the bar bill paid on a Sunday but, night uh, on a Sunday night yeah. I didn't even hear the, the ring for last orders yet Neil but uh, we better get ourselves finished off and uh, get ourselves over to the bar and sort out our bill and get one last pint but uh, thanks everyone for joining us on this show and it was a real interesting look back to the British Grand Prix and it really sets the, the scene for the rest of the season as well we've still got plenty of racing left in MotoGP and hopefully We've got races that are half as good as what we had here today at Silverstone. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. As I said, Patreon and uh, also keep an eye out on Spotify and SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts. And if possible, just leave a review for the show as well. It helps other users try and find um, find the Paddock Pass podcast. So thanks for joining us on Periscope and uh, listening to the podcast.